We're going to continue our service now by opening God's Word, specifically to Psalm 59 today. And Psalm 59 is a psalm that deals more than anything with the subject of conflict. And conflict's a subject that we're all very familiar with, isn't it? We live in a world that is full of conflict. Just turn on the news and almost every story deals with, in some form or fashion, conflict. We see conflict on a global scale. We see nation against nation, and we see cold wars and trade wars and military wars and things like genocide. We see conflict on a national scale. Certainly just look at our political system and everything that's happening there. There's all kinds of crazy conflict there, isn't there? We see conflict as well just in some of the culture wars that we face as our society debates and argues about things like race relations and immigration and same-sex marriage and abortion. There's conflict all over the place in those matters. Conflict happens local government. We certainly have an experience of that here in northwest Indiana where there's been a history of racial divisions and all sorts of political conflicts. But we all experience conflict on a very personal level as well, don't we? Sometimes in the workplace or with our neighbors or in your marriage, with your kids, your in-laws. The human condition is one that is full of conflict and opposition. We face it to varying degrees. Sometimes our conflicts are relatively minor but other times they become quite severe, become all-consuming. Adversity, opposition, these are just parts of the regular, everyday experiences of human life. And we are in a sermon series in the book of Psalms, and a great number of Psalms address situations of conflict, particularly conflict where the wicked are opposing the righteous. Now, many of the Psalms we've dealt with thus far, they're, are, uh, they're uplifting. They describe in beautiful and poetic terms the glory of God. They direct our eyes to worship Him. They comfort us in our sorrow. They provide for us wisdom. But many of the Psalms are weighty, even jarring, unsettling in their tone. And if you read through the Psalter from beginning to end, you will be amazed the number of times that you will see the word enemy or enemies occur. More than 30% of the Psalms make direct mention of certain enemies that are coming against God's people. This is because the conflict, the theme of conflict and opposition is one of the most prominent themes in the entire Psalter. The Psalms are written from the ground level perspective of human reality, which as we know is full of conflict and strife and opposition and adversity. And so a vast number of Psalms address this subject of what it means to stand against the wicked, of how it feels to be oppressed and under opposition. Now, many of the psalms that we find take the form of a lament. There are many different classifications of psalms. There's hymns, ascent psalms, messianic psalms, wisdom psalms. Laments psalms are a type of psalm, and they are truly the most common type of psalm in the Psalter. One-third of all the psalms could be classified as laments. And laments primarily involve laying a troubling, hard situation before the Lord. They're expressions of grief and sorrow, pain, weariness. They address hard issues. They describe trouble and opposition faced by God's people. And they contain a cry to God for help through that opposition. One-third of the Psalms have this focus. And within the laments, there's a subcategory of laments commonly called the imprecatory Psalms. 
And the imprecatory psalms are likely the most troubling, unsettling, theologically difficult psalms in the entire Psalter. They're called imprecatory psalms because they contain strong imprecations against the wicked. Now you're saying, come on, Pastor Brad, come down to our level. What's an imprecation? It's not a word we use basically hardly at all. So let's have a brief vocabulary lesson, okay? Imprecation. An imprecation is essentially a curse. To offer an imprecation is to call down God's curse on someone. To say, God, curse these people. God, I want you to damn these people. Destroy them. Pour out your wrath on them. Smite them with your justice. Bring calamity and hardship upon them. These types of curses, they're rightly labeled imprecations. And they are found in the Psalter. Particularly in the types of psalms that we often call the imprecatory psalms. Let me give you a few examples of these. Psalm 35 would be one that says, Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Some harsh words. Asking God to destroy somebody. Also in Psalm 58, we see more more difficult things. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like a snail that dissolves into slime. Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Difficult words. Or perhaps most seriously, Psalm 69. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. These are strong words, harsh words, cursing words. And if you're like me, when you read these passages in the Bible, you get uncomfortable. All this talk about God's destroying his enemies. And then you see these harsh words calling down curses upon people. We come to these passages. We tend to speed up and glance over them. We, we, we might be tempted to think, ah, oh, that's just Old Testament stuff. We've moved on from that now here in the New Testament era. After all, we have, of course, the teachings of Christ, which seem to be, in many cases, in direct opposition to these example prayers here we see in the Psalms. For example, Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemies, love your neighbor, and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Or on the cross, Jesus, of course, uttered these words. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He said this even as they divided his garments. He said this. Words of mercy to the people who were torturing and executing him, rather than words of cursing and of judgment. And later, Peter reflects on Christ's own posture towards opposition when he wrote, he, meaning Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So how do we reconcile these harsh curses we see in Scripture with Jesus' own teaching? An example of grace and mercy, patience and forgiveness. Well, let me try to answer that for us by walking us through one of these imprecatory psalms, essentially, specifically Psalm 59. And this psalm was written, we think, by David, and he pens this psalm in a time of his life when he is under great opposition, when he is being hunted and stalked by those who would destroy him. And first, I'm going to work through the psalm verse by verse, and then we're going to step back and consider, okay, how should God's people today interpret and apply a difficult passage like this? So that in our day-to-day of life, when opposition strikes, what should be our response? When the wicked rise up against God's people today, what should we do? Should we respond in prayers that call down God's curses and judgment upon people? Or something else. So let's go section by section through Psalm 59, beginning with the first two verses, verse 1 and 2. And these two verses, the psalm begins essentially with a prayer for deliverance. We see David write, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. David acknowledges that he needs here God's help. He has enemies that are rising up against him, and they are particularly violent enemies. They are described as evil, as bloodthirsty. And in particular, tradition holds that this psalm was written in the context of 1 Samuel 19, where what we see in that chapter, we see David resting comfortably at home. But then in verse 11, We read, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. So there are men hiding, lying in wait, looking for an opportunity to apprehend David and to destroy him. That is severe opposition. Essentially, he has a group of bandits waiting to assault and kill him. And in the face of this imminent danger, David begins this psalm with a Godward orientation. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. David turns to the Lord for help. Not his own sword, not his own defenders. He asks God to deliver him from these bandits who are bent on his destruction. There's an important lesson for us here in that, isn't there? I'm going to come back to it in a bit. But let's keep moving on. The following verses then describe more fully these adversaries, this opposition that David faces. So starting verse 3, For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord, God of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, belling with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us. These bloodthirsty, evil men are described as dogs who are prowling around after David. They're trying to stir up others against David, and they are persistent. They are constantly on the hunt wanting to destroy him. 
And David declares that their pursuit, it is unjust, it is wrong. He declares his own innocence in verses 3 and 4 when he says, For behold, they lie in wait for my life, fierce men stir up strife against me, for no transgression or sin of mine, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. So the opposition is clearly unjust. It is wicked, it is brutal, it is unfair, it is evil. And it is severe opposition, opposition that genuinely threatens David's life. And it was also against God's divine anointing of David as king. So it was a threat and opposition against God himself. And this leads then David to cry out his first imprecation in verse 5 when he says, Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. And here the psalm takes a broader, more wide-ranging focus. David now speaks more globally as he asks God to punish all people who would do evil. He calls a curse down upon all wicked people, asking God to punish them. We're going to come back to the implications of that here in a moment, but continuing to move on through the psalm first, we see then the next three verses now take a shift. And all of a sudden, now we see beautiful and powerful descriptions of God. So looking at verse 8. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God and his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. And here David now describes God in grandiose terms. The Lord towers over the opposition. He laughs at people and nations who would dare to threaten his reign. God is described as David's strength and his fortress. He is David's security, his bulwark in times of trouble. David knows that God is faithful to protect him. And that God will not fail. He says, my God in his steadfast love will meet me. David is confident that in times of great trouble, God will remain faithful in his loving covenant with David. No man, no weapon, no army, no nation can stand against the Lord. He laughs at pitiable men who try to come after him with swords and with arrows They're like little dogs just running around. But the Lord is pictured here as an impenetrable wall, a fortress of security against which the enemies of God's people stand absolutely no chance. He is undeniably supreme and greater than any force on earth. David calls upon that Force confident that God is at his side amid the terribly severe and dangerous opposition that David is facing. My God, in his steadfast love will meet me. God will look, let me look in triumph on my enemies, David declares. Then in verse 11, it gets harsh again. In verse 11, we see now the opposition is more specifically cursed. David says, in praying some very bold and strong prayers against his enemy, he says, Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield 
For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. So David begins by asking that these wicked people, they they be left alive so that they might be an example of God's justice. Kill them not, lest my people forget. David wants to teach his people a lesson through the punishment of these wicked people. And then he asks several things, that they totter and be brought down, that they be trapped in their pride, that they be consumed with wrath, and that they be made no more. Very harsh words, for sure. David is essentially asking, for the total destruction of these wicked people. There's no grace here. There's no forgiveness here. David wants these wicked people to be judged by God and to be judged most harshly. To ask that these people be consumed by God's wrath. There's nothing more terrifying. There's nothing more horrible that anybody could face. And David is wishing upon these people, therefore, the absolute worst, most terrible fate possible. And how can David rightly pray these things? Can we righteously pray these kind of things ourselves? These are very difficult questions. But let's consider first the conclusion of this psalm, where things end on a very positive note now as David expresses joy and confidence in the strength and faithfulness of God. So we see verse 16. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. There is great joy and confidence here as David concludes. Three times he mentions that he will sing praises to God. He will sing of God's strength. He will sing of God's love. He will sing of God's glories. And amid all of this severe opposition, there is genuine joy in David's heart. And that joy comes from the stability and the certainty that he has in the Lord amid all the opposition that is coming to him. Throughout the psalm, three times God is described as David's strength. Three times David proclaims God's steadfast love. Twice God is mentioned as David's fortress, and the Lord is also described as David's refuge and his shield. So the very clear message that David wants us to see here in the psalm that conclude with is this. Even amid great opposition, we should have confidence and joy in God's strength and faithfulness to us, which will never fail. Even amid great opposition, we should have confidence and joy in God's strength and faithfulness to us, which will never fail. Now that is good news for us, isn't it, church? That is good news for all the little trials that we face. But it is especially good news for all the incredible, incredibly difficult things that we face. And this psalm challenges us to see all of the opposition we face with the right perspective. That at best, our most difficult adversaries 
Our most challenging opponents, the most heartbreaking conflicts we have with people, they are like feeble dogs. Poor, mangy, little scavenging dogs that prowl around looking for ways to harm us. They howl, they bark at us, trying to intimidate us, they growl and try to threaten us in scary ways. But the reality is this we have a shield, a refuge. A fortress in God that no enemy can penetrate. Those opposing dogs that we face in God, we tower over our oppressors. We are safe within God's fortress. We look down upon them from the top of this massive, indomitable wall. And far, far down below, we see these pitiful little dogs hoping to assail us. But they can't get to us. They can't scale the wall. They can't knock it down. The stone is 10 feet thick and it's three stories high and we are safe within the secure and sovereign refuge and fortress of our God who provides to us an unending fountain of strength in moments of wicked opposition and who will never turn his back to us because of his steadfast love for his people. Now, is that good news for us, church? And David wants us to see that even amid severe opposition, we should have confidence and joy in God's strength and faithfulness to us because it will never fail. Yes, sometimes the dogs get close. They might sneak through the gates, might nip and bite at us at times, but we are never less left defenseless and completely without power. In fact, quite the opposite. We have the most powerful fortress and source of strength we could ever hope to have in God. And you want proof of that? Just think of all the most ruthless oppressors in human history. Adolf Hitler, Pol Pot, Joseph Stalin, Genghis Khan. What do all these oppressors have in common? They're all dead. They're all in the grave. No matter how terrible their reign, they were all ultimately defeated. But the Lord is still on the throne. He is a fortress, a shield, a refuge that cannot be defeated, and his faithfulness for his people will never be questioned. So be encouraged, church. Even amid great evil and opposition, we should have confidence and joy in God's strength and for faithfulness to us, which will never fail. This is perhaps the most critical, overarching application for us this morning. But let's look back now at the psalm and consider some of the tougher things in it. Namely, how can David pray such harsh and condemning prayers over his enemies? And when we are faced with wicked opposition, Ourselves? Do we have the same freedom to pray these types of things ourselves? In answering that question, we first need to understand that the Hebrew Psalms, they are essentially poetry. And as such, they often employ dramatic, overstated language to make a point. They often contain, they contain extreme expressions for dramatic effect. It's just like how my kids, my young children, sometimes speak about things. Like when it's hot outside... And they made a big mess in the garage, and now it's time to clean it up. Often, I say, hey, you got to clean up the garage right now. They often say something like, I can't do it. It's too hot. I'm going to die. You're not going to die. 
suck it up and clean up the garage, please. Or when I'm wrestling with my kids and I'm tickling them a little bit, maybe I got them in a headlock or something like that, and we're just playing around, and all of a sudden, sometimes one of them says, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And how are you talking right now? See, my, just like my kids, Hebrew poetry, it sometimes uses grandiose, overstated language to make a dramatic point. And that is certainly true in these difficult cursings that we find. Like the one example I read previously, let them be like a snail that dissolves into slime. The author here does not literally expect these wicked people to turn into slime. It's evocative language intended to make a point, a dramatic point. And so understanding the poetic nature of the Psalms often some softens somewhat the strength of these biblical curses. But we're also helped, I think, when we consider the heart posture of these psalms. And there are five underlying characteristics to the imprecatory prayers, these prayers for justice in the Psalter. The imprecatory prayers, they they have five characteristics that undergird them all. And, And the first is this, they have a just concern. All imprecatory prayers are essentially prayers for justice. They are not prayers for vengeance. They're not prayers for people to face suffering as a form of payback. They're not prayers for people to receive hurt because of hurt that they themselves have inflicted. Rather, these prayers all ask God to rightly punish people for their sins. They, they ask God to distinguish between good from evil and to act accordingly. So here in Psalm 59, consume them in wrath, consume them until they are no more. David believes that God's wrath is what his oppressors justly deserve. And so he prays for what is just, not what is vengeful. So the imprecatory prayers of the Psalms, they are essentially prayers for God's justice to be acted upon. They have a just concern. Second, these tough prayers, they all have a submissive spirit. A submissive spirit. They trust in God to act. They're not prayers to inflict vengeance or justice apart from God. So you'll never see the psalmist praying, Lord, give me the opportunity to strike him down. Rather, they all ask for God himself to be the one who enacts the justice. And these prayers submit to God's will regarding the fate of the oppressor. They they have a spirit of your will be done. And they essentially say, Lord, I trust you to do what is good and right in this situation. So there is a submission here that is humble and contrite and honoring to the Lord. They have a submissive spirit. And third, they also have an evangelistic burden. Consider what Psalm 83 says when it says, Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as flames set the mountain ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. This is a very strong prayer for God's justice. He would pursue people like a tempest terrify them like a hurricane, but notice the purpose statement at the end. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name. Here's the purpose for the judgment that is being asked for, for the wicked people to turn to God. The author hopes and prays that when these wicked people face God's justice, they will realize that the Lord is God and turn to him. So there is hope that the suffering will produce repentance and conversion. And in this sense, the hardship that is being preyed upon this person is clearly 
a means to an end. And the end is the Lord would get that person's attention. So that through feeling the weight of God's displeasure upon them, that person would break and submit their life to the Lord. So there's an evangelistic burden behind these prayers. That's a third. A fourth characteristic then is that these prayers have a missional mindset. They have a missional mindset. These prayers are asking for God's kingdom to be established through the eradication of wickedness and evil. You see, this side of the cross, we, we know that this will surely someday happen, that someday Christ will return and he is going to destroy all wickedness and evil on the earth. But these imprecatory prayers in the Psalms, they have more of an immediate focus. They ask God to do that right now in the moment. They beg God to show up on the scene and to eradicate wickedness, all so that his kingdom would be advanced in the world, so that the mission of God, which is ultimately to reassert his rule and his reign over a rebellious and fallen world, so that rule would be advanced. These prayers, they have a missional focus. They are asking God to do something that he has promised to eventually do, which is to eradicate all wickedness and evil on the earth have that missional mindset. And finally, these imprecatory prayers, they also have a theocentric focus. They want God's glory to be known. Consider this example from Psalm 83. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Here's another prayer of imprecation. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace. But notice the purpose statement at the end. That they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. So the motive for the request here is clear. The prayer is saying, God, make your name great by demonstrating your justice. Demonstrate that you are the most high over all creation. Glorify yourself so that all the wicked who oppose you will see that you are great and mighty and God do this by wiping out the wicked. So the motive is for God to be proved right and just and powerful and supreme and glorious. The psalm we're studying today in Psalm 59 contains a Similar purpose statement in verse 13. Consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more. That they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. The purpose of the judgment of the wicked is to prove to everyone that the Lord is God. There are none who can stand against him. His power is too great. His might is indescribable. And his dominion and authority is unquestioned. He reigns over everyone, including those who would subvert his will, who are wicked, evil people on earth. And so these imprecatory prayers, they ask for God's glory to be seen through his just dealings with the wicked. The motive is not punishment. It is so that the world will see the might and grandeur and glory of God particularly as he deals justly with evil and wickedness. So these are the five heart postures of the imprecatory psalms. They have a just concern, a submissive spirit, an evangelistic burden, a missional mindset, and a theocentric focus. And understanding this, along with the nature of Hebrew poetry, I think it softens the unsettling nature of these verses. 
At least we begin to see and understand how, especially in the Old Testament, God's people could have rightly prayed prayers like this. But what about us today? Can we rightly and justly pray prayers like this against our oppressors? Against the evil that we see taking place in the world or even in our political system and laws and so many things that we know that are contrary to God's word? How do we reconcile praying as we see here with the gospel? How do we reconcile these verses with the example of Christ who submitted himself willingly to wicked men, who taught love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? And I think when Jesus taught that, pray for those who persecute you, he's not thinking, pray that God's wrath would consume them. There's a tension here for sure. But there is something for us to learn and apply as we work through it. I believe there is some room for us to pray against our enemies and against the wicked. We ought to long for justice as the Old Testament saints did. But this side of the cross, we need to be more cautious about praying for God to enact brutal hardship upon others. And there are several reasons for this. The first is, of course, the examples and teachings of Christ, which demonstrate a less aggressive, a more submissive, humble approach to opposition. But the second, which I think is most helpful, is that we are not presently in situations anywhere close to the severe opposition faced by David in the Old Testament saints of God. You see, in David's day, his opposition was literally bent on destroying him. They were actively and genuinely seeking to end his life. And the wicked nations around Israel wanted to totally eradicate Israel from the face of the earth. They were bent on doing this. And they were a very, very, very real threat, humanly speaking, to Israel's existence. And so out of this context, we see these imprecatory psalms come when an author's life is in immediate danger. And in addition, his entire family, his entire community is being threatened severely. There were groups of people actively wanting to destroy God's people, to plunder all their possessions, to kill their children, to rape their women, to torture anyone who opposed them. And the nature of this opposition against by God's people in the Old Testament, it was incredibly severe. And so the nature of the prayers against the opposition are likewise severe. But today I don't think any of us here fit, face threats anywhere close to this type of severity and evil. How many of you have a group of bandits lying in wait around your home? And you come back from church today who seek to kill you? Or do we have bands of roaming marauders out in the cornfields around Crown Point just biding their time before they come in and plunder our city and burn it to the ground and sexually abuse our women and enslave our children? By God's grace, we don't live in a day like that. We have incredible security. And the types of opposition that we face are by no means as severe as the types of opposition faced by the Old Testament saints who, who prayed this way. And so the severity of our prayers for justice, they ought to match the severity of the threat and opposition that we face. Yes, we pray for justice, but we do so mindful of the example of Christ and also mindful of the severity of the opposition that is before us. So with that, let me now offer you five principles, 
quickly for how God's people today should long for justice. How do we today long for justice and pray for that here in the New Testament era? Five ways we should posture ourselves against those who are wicked and evil. Five ways we can rightly pray for God to deal with evil people in our world today. Well, here's the first, and it's one that I've already largely addressed. Pray in a manner appropriate to the severity of the threat and opposition. Pray in a manner appropriate to the severity and threat of opposition. So, severe opposition demands severe prayers. Less severe opposition, less severe prayers. So, if you have a neighbor who is just terribly annoying, they play loud music all the time, their dog barks late into the night, Their weeds are overgrown and their lawn looks terrible, bringing down your property value. I think it would be terribly inappropriate for you to pray that God would smite that person and afflict them and consume them with wrath. Yes, your neighbor's an annoyance to you, but really, do you need need God to destroy them? Perhaps God wants you to show them patience and kindness and care so that that neighbor might see the love of Christ in you. But on the other hand, let's consider hypothetically that you live in Seattle, Washington. And every day, the nation of North Korea starts launching out missiles into the ocean. And there's credible evidence to believe that these missiles are equipped with nuclear warheads. And each day, North Korea launches a new missile and it gets 100 miles closer. The next day, plop. The next day, plop. Closer and closer, your government is unable to do anything, and you see a nuclear threat approaching, an enemy that is bent on your destruction and the destruction of your entire community. And you calculate in just one week, the missile will arrive and explode above your city, decimating everything for miles and miles, killing hundreds of thousands of people. Now, how do you pray? I'd be praying personally a lot like what I see in the Psalms here, in a situation like that. Because severe threats and opposition merit more severe cries from God's people for justice. And the cries are more severe when the stakes are severely high, and the severity of our prayers become more intense as the degree of wickedness and evil increases. So when wicked opposition strikes, pray in a manner that is appropriate to the severity of the threat and the opposition. That's one guideline. Here's a second. Pray with the same heart posture we see in the Psalms. You remember the mindset, the imprecatory prayers in the Psalms. Despite their harsh language, they have a just concern and a submissive spirit and an evangelistic burden, a missional mindset, and a a theocentric focus. And so approach your opposition with The same heart posture that we see there. Yes, desire God's justice, but plead for God's mercy to be shown to these people through their repentance. Pray for what you feel would be just, but hold that prayer in an open hand saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Ask that God's glory would be seen through you as you bear up under that opposition and perhaps even as you follow Jesus' instruction to turn the other cheek to those who would offend you. I can remember a situation where one of our staff members here faced injustice. 
All of his tools one night were stolen out of his workshop. And of course, he was very dismayed by this. It was thousands of dollars worth of tools. And I remembered at our prayer meetings as staff, we gathered to share the story, and we prayed specifically for the situation. We prayed that that thief would be discovered and apprehended. We prayed that the tools would be recovered and returned. We prayed that that thief would feel the consequences of his sin as rightly appropriate. Ultimately, so that God would use that circumstance of punishment to break him and cause him to repent and to see his need for a savior. And we prayed for that thief's salvation. And so you approach your opposition the same heart posture we see here in the Psalms. If you pray with this heart posture against evil and opposition, you will, in this way, you'll, you'll likely be on safe, biblical, godly ground. Third guideline. Have your view of sin, sinners, and justice informed by the gospel. Have your view of these things informed by the gospel. You see, in the Old Testament, the full redemptive plan of God was not yet revealed. There was no understanding that God was going to offer mercy and grace and salvation to the ends of the earth. God's gift of mercy was only coming to God's people, specifically understood as the nation of Israel at this time. And so it was easier to pray against the wicked because they were not going to be benefactors of God's grace. They were never going to be recipients of it. But this side of the cross, we know that the gospel is for all sinners, no matter how wicked. We know that God yearns to see every sinner come to a place of repentance. And this should inform then our prayers against those who are evil and oppose God's people. We should pray that they repent. We should pray that they be broken. That they see their own need for God and turn to him. Because now here, the side of the cross, the difference between the sin and the sinner is now more distinct. So that the sin can be hated and the sinner can be loved. And this is the gospel. That God has made grace available to all people, no matter how wicked and evil they might be. That he desires all to come to repentance. And so our prayer and posture towards wicked people should mirror the heart of God in that. A fourth guideline. Know that the final judgment is certain and wait patiently for that time. Final judgment is certain. Jesus is going to return. He is going to eradicate all evil and wickedness. Someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we wait patiently for that day when Christ will appear and put an end to all wickedness. As we face opposition, we surrender then matters of injustice and vengeance to the Lord, trusting in his sovereignty, knowing that someday a day of reckoning will come and all justice will be done. Everything will be made right, evil eradicated, wickedness over, and Christ will reign supreme, unquestioned on his throne. We wait patiently for that day. And finally, we rest confident in the supreme strength and unwavering faithfulness of God. We rest secure in knowing that God is our strength, our refuge, our fortress, our shield. And this is never in doubt because of his unending faithfulness to us. The strength and love that God provides for his people is now, this side of the cross, more certain and and unchanging than ever. In Christ, we have absolute confidence in God's great victory over evil. 
We have absolute confidence that he's coming back and will eradicate all evil and all wickedness. And even our greatest oppressor, sin and death itself has been defeated by Christ. Death and the grave do not defeat God's people. Because Christ rescues his people. To those who trust in him for salvation, he rescues them from their greatest oppression, the, the, the clutches of death, and he brings them forever into God's safe and indomitable kingdom of heaven, a kingdom that is the ultimate refuge, the ultimate fortress, the ultimate place of security and peace where there will be opposition no more. And if you are a recipient of God's protective strength and an, an unwavering, faithful grace and love, If you are a recipient of that, take hope amid whatever trial or opposition comes your way. Christ has overcome the greatest adversary. And he shares that victory with us. With that, surely he can carry you through whatever trial or opposition you face. And if you're unsure about this victory and the protection that Christ affords, be sure to talk with a friend or a leader here at this church about trusting Christ for salvation and taste for yourself the incredible strength and security that God affords you in Christ. So be encouraged, church. Even amid great opposition, we should have confidence and joy in God's strength and faithfulness to us which will never fail. In Christ, we are more than conquerors through his grace that he gives us. Let's be encouraged by that hope. As we rise up and fight and pray against evil and trust and cling to Christ as we await his return.